This, this is Brock and Salk. Brock Eward is my hero. Jay Buter just punched me in the kidney. Powered through the Alaska Airlines studio. On Seattle Sports. Oh, we're going to do you on the internet. That really worked that way, Sherm. This is a show that has my name on it. It kind of does, though. Brought to you by Carter Volkswagen in Ballard. Now, here are your hosts, Brock Eward and Mike Salk. Hello! We can debate reasonably what the biggest issue is with the Mariners and why they kind of are where they are, what will happen next, but I don't think there's any debate that this has been a very disappointing start for them and specifically for Julio Rodriguez. He's hitting 204. He has just seven home runs. He hasn't hit one in eight games. Uh, He's honestly brought kind of right when you think he's about to take off. And we talked about, you know, what it was like for him as he kind of moved into the, you know, he's dropped down in the order and then he bounced right back up, which I'm not sure I fully understand. And then sort of has gone right back to struggling again as bad as it's been for Julio over the course of the year, if you look at it in close and late situations, it gets worse. Mm. I mean, and and he's not the last guy on the team in OPS in close and late situations. For qualified players, that's Cal Raleigh, but he's second to last. In close and late situations, his OPS is 486. Yikes. In close, let me just say that again. And for here's here's a little context on it, okay? So let me just give you some context. Here's the top seven. OPS in close and late situations among qualified Mariners. Thank you for putting your readers on, too. It's very, very small print. Jared Kelnick, 988. He's gotten better in close and late situations. J.P. Crawford, 708. He's been roughly who he is in close and late situations. Ty France, 590. Eugenio Suarez, 588. By the way, you can't win with this. Teoscar Hernandez, 539. And then Julio's at 486, and Cal Raleigh is at 452. Wow. You want to know why the Mariners aren't winning? There you go. In close and late situations, six of your, I'm sorry, five of your best players are below 600 OPS. And the only guy on your team above 800 is Jared Kelnick. Why aren't you winning? That's the reason. You want me to throw batting averages on it? By the way, it's just as bad. 174 for Ty France, 214 for Eugenio, 200 for Teo, 174 for Julio, and 125 for Cal Raleigh. Mm. That's why the Mariners aren't winning. In close and late situations, their best players are a disaster. But let's focus on Julio for a little bit because we talked through some solutions last week or two weeks ago. What do you do? They dropped him down, et cetera. It worked at first and they moved him back up. I don't know what you do now. You give him a few days off. I don't, I don't even know because this team cannot survive without Julio. They can't. He doesn't need to be an MVP candidate, but they can't survive with Julio Rodriguez hitting 200. They can't survive with him as the 14th best center fielder in the game in terms of OPS. Only 16 guys qualify. He's 14th of 16 qualified center fielders in baseball in OPS. Only two guys have a lower OPS than him that qualify. Mm. Now, I know there's going to be some folks out here who hear this and say, oh, Salk's blaming Julio Rodriguez. This is not about blame. This is not about calling Julio bad names or anything like that. There are lots of guys responsible for their struggles. I just read you a bunch of them. But he's your Acuna. He's your best player. He is your straw that stirs the drink. He's the reason for the optimism. They need him to be him. So what do you do if you are the Mariners to try to help Julio get back to being himself? 
I think it's continual conversation. Benetti just texted me those actual numbers about the heart of the plate, right? And, and he's actually seen in 23 just about a percentage more than he did last year. Last year, it was 23% of the pitches were in the heart of the plate, but he slugged nearly 700 on those pitches. This year, it's 25%, and he's slugging 561. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's not, not doing the damage. Right. And I will tell you what my eyes see. I think Jerry said this to us, or Scott, and it's and it's like crystal clear. He's jumpy. You know, he, he he's, he's you could just feel it in the box. He's just he's just jumpy. He he, he wants to jumpstart this team. He wants to be Acuna, of course. You know, and and, and he was paid accordingly and and given you know basically a lifetime extension after last year and and he he's the guy and he did it last year you know for month after month after month starting in may and june and july and he was rookie of the year and he was on these pitches and he was doing damage and he was the difference maker for you and as you said and you read through these numbers right now not happening not happening so, so how do you how do you get him back to where he is i mean listening okay, to well, what benetti said it sounds like the key right off the bat is just be a little bit more patient. Yep. Right? Key number two, don't overswing. How do you teach a 22-year-old kid to to do less to do more? <laughs> like, I, I, I don't know how you do that. I mean, that that's what you've got to do. You've got to teach a 22-year-old kid that sometimes to get out of a hole, you've got to do less to accomplish more. And everything about that kind of goes the opposite of, of like what's made Julio successful over the course of his life. Yeah. I am sure that golfers, uh, like quarterbacks, like batters and hitters in the batter's box, I am sure that their swing coach, their manager, the people around him all say the same thing, and that is simplify. Mm. Simplify. When I was struggling, you know, if I threw an interception or my accuracy was off or my fundamentals were bad, for me, it was just get on top of the football. Like if I, I just felt, just you know, one with, thing. yeah, just one thing. If Benetti was saying, hey, you know, and he was sharing that story about feeling good and Arenado is not going to, you know, feel good and, and <laughs> until he's hitting good. And, 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 but for me, like that feeling good was just get on top of the ball. When I got on top of the ball, good things happened. I could rip it. That spiral was coming. That thing was coming downhill. It was going to be so much more accurate. When I was underneath the ball, when my fundamental, all these, nope, just cut to the chase of it. Get on top of the football. Why is it so hard with even one thing to focus on for the best athletes in the world to do that? Because they've got to try to do the one thing that may be the most difficult in all of sports to do, and that is hit a round ball with your round bat. And as Jason Benetti said, what's not getting talked about enough, and I thought this was one of his excellent points mm-hmm. too, in this balanced schedule, unlike, hey, man, we saw these guys 19 different times and we knew their tendencies and, and they can only make so many different adjustments against me because I know the adjustments because I know their stuff. Well, it's a little different animal now, right? You're, you're seeing everybody in the league. And now they've also found a little bit of a hole in your game. And, and that is pitching you inside and I thought AJ, you know, Brzezinski during the game Saturday was really in that sequence, hit on it really well. Like in that at bat, like okay, you've got to hit the fastball. Like you bet you've got to be on time for the fastball. You can't do both. So I gave you my one little simple thing, and that was his. Hey, just hit the fastball, and they saw. Oh, there he is. He's late on it because he's thinking, "Oh, is it the curveball coming? Is it the off-speed stuff coming?" And if he's late on the fastball, you're dead on the off-speed. And right now, that that fastball and that stuff's coming in on him, or it's coming up. 
and he's not on it. And then he's just chasing that, that off speed and guessing. And that is not, as they said, in between. That one's hard for me, man. Like, yes, I agree that that Jason's right about the balanced schedule changing things, but should it be changing things more for Julio than everybody else? Maybe. I mean, I guess his argument would be if he were still here, he would say, yeah, once you're in a slump, they're going to compound them. Or if you're the star on the team, like you're not going to beat us. All right. But that's not the case with all the other stars in the league are still doing their thing. And you just saw Acuna beat you over the yeah. course of three days. I mean, like, I'm yeah. not sure I fully buy that unless you think the Mariners don't have as good an advanced scouts as everybody else. And I don't think that's the case. Mm-hmm. I think that they're dealing with the same, roughly the same group of people. Everybody else is. Yeah. So I don't know that I'm fully buying that. Maybe I'll buy that. That once you're in a slump, it's harder to get out of it mm-hmm. because more and more teams understand what to do against you. But you know what, man, scouting yeah. reports have been around for a while. This isn't year one. I get it. The the balance schedule changes things, but it can't change them that much in, in two months. The schedule so far through a month and a half is not different than it was last year, or at least not significantly. So I don't know, man. I don't I don't know whether I'm buying that. Okay. If I'm Julio, I got to find a way to just chill out, I, I, not swing so hard, not try to hit five-run home runs every time you're up, because guess what? Those aren't possible. The last time I said that, I had to clarify because somebody said, uh, Mike, a uh, five-run home run is not possible. <laughs> oh, thanks, pal. Appreciate it. Thanks for the thanks for the old helping hand. Nice of you to tell Fact me. Fact-checking is important. Yes, so. very yes, important. Is. Yes, it is. I don't know what he's got to do, Brock, but until he does it and until those five guys hit better than 214 in close and late situations, I, I don't know how you get out of a slum. When the Mariners score five runs or more, they win, and when they score four runs or less, they lose. It's pretty simple. And if you want to score more runs in close late situations, you better hit more than 214. You better have an OPS higher than 500 or you're not going anywhere. We'll give you everything you need to know, including the most beautiful story of the weekend. Next, it's Brock and Salk, Seattle Sports on 710. Need to know. 15 minutes past every hour with Brock and Salk. Here's what you need to know. Up first. Yeah, it was just kind of what we've seen. Unfortunately, there was nothing different about this Mariner weekend. It was just basically the same stuff, right? Lose one, win one, then lose another. And when you have an opportunity to start to tilt things in your favor, unfortunately, it's like that fulcrum points right back and you go right back in the other direction. And it's it's just been frustrating to watch. Maybe they are on the verge of breaking out. Maybe there is a moment ahead of them where these guys start to hit. But until they do, it's going to be more of the same. When they hit, they win. They did hit on Saturday, then forgot how against uh, another lefty with a sky high ERA yesterday. Jared Schuster dominated. Scott knows that these close and late situations are the problem. We played a lot of close games uh, all year long, not just the last couple weeks. And then, you know, we have history here being on the right side of those. But to do that, it's the little things. It's it's you know, it's it's getting rallies going late in games by taking a walk, putting a ball in play, forcing the other team to make a play. And then if they don't, you take advantage of that. We haven't we haven't been able to do that. And I agree with that. I'm like I, I I give them credit when they win the close games for doing those little things. And part of the reason they're not doing it this year is they're not doing the little things. What are they in one run games now? Four and ten? So four and twelve, I think it is. Boo. Yeah, four and twelve. Ooh. Yeah, well, we've had a lot of one-run games because their pitching has given them an opportunity, and it did all weekend long in a hitter's park against one of the best offenses in all of baseball. Bryce Miller was filthy through six innings. Again, absolutely filthy. Had to go out in the seventh on Friday because Scott was saying even after an off day, the bullpen was a little bit thin, and 
wanted him to work through it. Unfortunately, got a couple runners on, and the bullpen gave it up, and he gets all three of those earned runs um, in, in that loss that night. Logan does enough against the bullpen, and yesterday George Kirby gives you seven innings, another quality start. So your pitching is giving you an opportunity. The other side of that's not getting it done. I also didn't love the news, and we'll ask Shannon about this in about 40 minutes when Shannon Dreyer joins us. Cal Raleigh dealing with a neck issue that's been a problem all season long. Neck spasms. I don't. I'm a spinal guy. I know spine. Yeah. I got a bad spine. I know spine. I don't like that news for a young guy. And maybe that's speaking to some of the challenges that he's had getting it going as well. Here's the second thing you need to know. OTAs start today for the Seahawks, which means the full squad will be together. They don't hit, but they will wear helmets and they'll be out there practicing. Rookies, first chance to see what life's like with some of those veterans on the field. And I just, I keep pointing out a few guys, Brock, that I think are going to need to rise to the occasion, right? And some of them will. Mike Jackson, that's a dude who's a scrapper, found his way into a starting job, battled and battled until he got it last year and then wouldn't give it up. I don't think he's going to try to give this up too easily against Devin Witherspoon. How about D. Eskers? Does he have anything? Is there competitive juice in there where he says, all right, they just drafted my replacement. If he wants to stay in the NFL, here's kind of your chance to do it and show that you've got a reason, you know, for, for being on this team. Daryl Taylor, Boye Mafe, two guys who play the same position as your second round pick and then throw the same, uh, the same thing at DJ Dallas as well. If I'm those five guys, I'm taking these OTAs real serious. Gosh, as you say that, isn't it amazing how fast that game moves on the field? When you're watching it, even in OTAs with helmets on, heck, even when it was the rookies, half of them that aren't even on this team that was just gonna, in a tryout mode, that game moves so fast on the field, it moves equally fast off the field. Just a couple of years ago, D. Eskridge is a second-round pick in this league. He may not be a Seattle Seahawk at the end of, of training camp. If you had to bet right now, is he? If I had to bet right now, no. Same. If I, if I had to put my own money on it right now because he's not been great in the special teams phase of things either. So, yeah, for all of those guys that you just mentioned right there, like Daryl Taylor, Mafia, they're going to make the team. But are they going to take the next step in their career? And in a contract year for Daryl Taylor, is he going to be able to hold those people off? This is the essence of competition, mm-hmm. which is the essence of this culture that Pete so covets. Here's the third thing you need to know. Seconds ago at the 15th. The fairy tale story. Gets better. That was the hole in one for Michael Block, the PGA teaching pro who battled his way to a number five, tied for 15th finish and $288,000 Brock and prize money. He qualifies for next year's PGA Championship and he was given a sponsor's exemption for the PGA Tournament this coming week. It's unbelievable. What a great story. And it is somewhat in contrast to the not great story of Brooks Kepka winning his fifth, which just, I don't know. It's who I would have picked heading into the weekend, honestly. But... Man, it's just kind of a bummer for the game, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Grandpa Mike was very just bothered. Why Why are these live golfers getting the golf in the majors? They can't I, keep them out. No. They, I mean, they've won, the, they've won the court cases that say you can't keep them out. I guess I guess so. Yeah, Michael Block certainly won the day. It's a pretty stinking cool story. And to hear just his honesty and, and yeah, pr- pretty stinking neat. I'll tell you what else was cool. As cool as that story was, the UW women's softball team, uh, they were – 
you know, they hosted the regional. They were the top seed in their region playing McNeese. All they got to do is beat McNeese to get to a super regional. They lose one nothing. Their bats don't get going for seven innings. So then they got to turn around and beat McNeese, who shut them out again for six innings, down six to zero. Mm. Six to zero. Come back and put seven on the board to win in the seventh inning. What Heather Tarr in the culture of that program? Kudos to those ladies. Awesome. Very cool. All right, that's everything you need to know. A quarter past every hour here on the Brock and Salt Show. Have you guys seen uh, we're just, we've, how much time we've spent now talking about Julio's struggles and, and how, I don't know what confounding it is, but the NL Rookie of the Year, Michael Harris. Have you seen his numbers Ooh, this year? Oh, my gosh. Not good. Oh, worse. He's, he's hit ninth in that lineup. He can't even. What's he, a buck 88 or something? He's hitting 171. Yeah. OPS of 509. Sophomore slump is real, right? I mean, that second year at it is 14 hits. Yikes. And certainly you can't say that it's because of the lineup around him. I mean, like, you know, he, he's not, not too much is being asked of him and he's nope. just struggling. I mean, again, I, I sort of saying this last week and it sounds like a cop out. I don't know how you figure this game out. I, I mean, just when you feel like you've got a sense of something, it, you know, it turns out that the exact opposite happens and you're just like, now he's not necessarily he wasn't he was the rookie of the year, but not quite in the same way as Julio was, where it was like, okay, this is now the future next great player in the game. But he's very highly thought of. <laughs> he really is. I mean, he is a very good, high quality, big time prospect who's going to be a very good player in Major League Baseball, and he's just completely gone away this year. If I had said to you, I figure this I, out. If I well to figure it out. If I had said to you at the break, you know, the game one. The opener against Cleveland. Now, if I were to say to you, hey, 30% of the way through the season, we're going to get near Memorial Day. We're going to get to Brock and Molly's 24th wedding anniversary on May 22nd, and the best player on the Mariners is going to be Jared Kelman. <laughs> He's going to lead the team in home runs. right? He's going to be your most clutch player. He's going to be an unbelievable player on the base pass. Uh, he's going to have figured it out. You would have said this team is the Texas Rangers. Yeah. This team is 12 games over 500, and you know, like this team is winning the American League West. It's it's really remarkable, and yet that's where we're at. Jared Kelnick is the best player on the Mariners right happy now. Happy anniversary, Brock. <laughs> Thank you, buddy. That's, it doesn't feel so happy when you spin it all that way. All right. Sorry. Uh, coming up next, uh, one of our favorites and a guy who will tell you where he's been right, Lewis Riddick. And you know what? Turns out he's right a lot, and he's been real right about these Seahawks. What does he think about where they're at now? We'll ask him that and a whole lot more coming up next on Brock and Salk. This this is Brock and Salk. Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studio. Back in mornings from 6 to 10. On Seattle Sports and the Seattle Sports app. It has been too long since we have talked to one of our very, very favorite guests, Louis Riddick. From ESPN, taking a few minutes to join us uh, now that the draft and everything is in the rearview mirror. We got OTAs today. Louis, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. How are you guys? We're doing really well, man. I mean, uh, you know, just really happy about a lot of the moves that the Seahawks have made off season and then into the draft. What did you make of what they did in the draft this year? I think it's just it's just doing more real, real quality work uh, and building on what, as you guys know, I believe got started last year in particular. Uh, I don't think you can be any happier with the return on investment they got last year out of the new players that came in there. I don't, and I think 2023 will result in the same with both some of the veteran player acquisitions that they, that they pulled off. And in particular, I think, you know, everyone's always excited about and intrigued about 
just how are these young guys, how is the young blood going to do that's being poured into this roster, injected into this roster? And honestly, look, I'm an optimist by nature anyway, but I'm a realist as well. And I think those two are converging real nicely when it comes to this team. You you can't argue against Devin Witherspoon. You can't argue against Jack, Jackson Smith and Jig, but no matter how hard you try, you can't argue against Derek Hall. You can't argue against Zach Charbonnet and how these guys fit into what Seattle wants to do, what they've already demonstrated they can do at the college level, and what you project to be their future performance in these systems with this team, with this young uh, roster base that's already been put together. It's – and, you know, not, and look – I, I think of all these guys, let's put it this way. I, I think that their fourth-rounder, Anthony Bradford, out of LSU, I think has the potential to be as good as any of them, if not the best one of them all, because his his skill level is just so ridiculously good. Look, John and his group, that being John Schneider and his group, have definitely – over the past two years, hit a sweet spot with what the coaches are looking for, what the coaches want to work with, both in terms of their physical characteristics and how these guys then take what they're being taught and apply it to the field. And that was evident last year, and I would suspect it'll be evident again this year. And as long as all of a sudden guys don't forget how to play or Pete doesn't forget how to coach or, you know, I know they're like I, I hear some of the chatter about, look, last year was a one-off for Gino. He can't possibly repeat that. I mean, that's just nonsense. That's just almost like rooting for someone to have had an aberration type of year. For what reason? I, I think everything is just looking up for this team. And I'm I'm as excited, if not more excited, this year for this team than I was last year because they got better. They got better. And um, the West is wide open, man. It is wide open. And if you're Seattle, you're going, we're kicking that door down this year. So they they were a year ahead last year. Okay, there's like four things there, Lewis, right there. I mean, just yeah, there's a lot. There's there's, there's like lot. four things. Okay, and then we're going to start with this one. Like you can't, you you when you say something like you can't argue with Evan Witherspoon, you can't argue. Do you know sports radio? Do you know Twitter? <laughs> well, it will it will right, argue. Sure. It will argue with anything. Well, you know what? Well, okay. Well, all right. Then let's take it. Let's take these four things. What are you going to argue about, Devin Witherspoon? A corner at number five. Maybe maybe some. Maybe somebody has said a corner, a, a corner at number five. I've heard somebody argue, you know, a corner, a premium position. You, you call a corner a premium position at number five? You could take a <laughs> corner that high? <laughs> yeah, you sure can. And well, I'll tell you what. <clears throat> so if we were to argue, well, not argue, let's just say if we were going to discuss the top five positions, Brock, on a football team, you know, so you're starting from scratch. You're, you're having an expansion team. Corner is going to be in your top five positions. Quarterback's always going to be number one, and then everything else is up for grabs over the next four. It's going to be offensive tackle, pass rusher, corner, wide receiver, in some order. In some order, it's going to be one of those. So why would so if you think Devin Winston represents what you philosophically believe in, what you realistically need on your football team? And ultimately, he is going to give you, you know, fifth. I mean, um, you know, top five overall production. You know, for the next 
five to eight years, ten years, then you take him. A slot you receiver? Him. You take a slot receiver at twenty? You're for you're the number one okay, receiver so in the league's a slot says, receiver? Who says Jackson, Jackson Smith and Jigba is just a slot receiver? Twitter. He's not. <laughs> he's not just a slot receiver. Now, are you saying how he's going to be used in Seattle? Mm-hmm. Or how and see I, I would argue still he's not just going to be used as a slot receiver in Seattle. And he's not just a slot receiver. You go to Ohio State and you talk to Brian Hartline and Ryan Day, or you just throw on the table and watch Jackson play. Yeah, he will he will cut you a new one at the slot position, but he doesn't have to. He can play the X, he can play the Z, he can play either one. And see, quite honestly, that's what I want. I, I want three wide receivers. Look, of the three of their top three right now, who's the guy who's least likely to go inside, right? Obviously, we know that's DK. But Jackson is the dude who, as a defensive player, I'm going, I don't know where number 11 is going to wind up, going to line up. I know that if I'm a safety and he's lined up in the slot, I better be looking for who's helping me. Who's the guy who's helping me? If he's outside, I'm going this. This guy is about as smooth and as crafty as a, as a release technician and a route runner as there is. So I'm not in. And he has plenty of speed. I know people say, well, he's not 4'3", he's not 4'2". Jackson, we'll, we'll see when training camp rolls around, whether or not he is speed challenged or not in terms of being able to line up on the outside and win. I'm, not, it, ar- yeah. I'm not worried about it. I think at the end of it, honestly, the only one that you'd really argue, and I'm just I'm playing devil's advocate with all of these because I certainly uh, understood and appreciated those first-round picks. Derek Hall, they loved. I mean, they had a first-round grade on them. They loved, so I'm going to yeah. trust their judgment. The one that you would nitpick, the one that you would argue, I think the one that may have the most meat on the bone is you go running uh-huh. back at 52 when there right. was still a need for big bodies on that defensive line in their right. front seven. You know that That's the sure. one that I think got nitpicked the most. Absolutely. And you know what? I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. And I don't disagree with you as to where the, there could be some debate and discussion there because Mel Kuyper was killing me on the set during this, you know, as this was going on. He's going, they still can't stop the run, Luke. Still can't stop the run. Still can't stop the run. And I'm like, I know. I get, I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. And I'm not disagreeing with you. I hear you. I hear you. And that will be, you're right. You're right. That will be one where you sit there and you go, hey, look, they come out here and, you know, they're giving up four, four and a half, four, eight, five yards of carry still, you know, and it's, and it's getting ugly like that again. And teams are playing ball control because they don't have to throw it against all these good DBs because they can just run it down their throat. Then, yeah, then wow. replay this, replay this, this interview because, <laughs> and replay the draft too, because I'm going to be sitting going, I didn't say that. That's not me. Well, it is <laughs> It is a major, major problem, but I'm going to disagree with both you guys a little bit because I, I, while I am with Mel, I don't think they can stop the run, and I do think it's going to be a major problem for them this year and maybe even a fatal flaw. I think the problem then comes with your first, second-round pick and Derek Hall, and I'm, I'm not ripping that pick. Again, if they had a first-round grade on him, I love it. But that's mm-hmm. where you passed on a bunch of defensive tackles, specifically what's the kid Benton from Wisconsin. I don't know whether yeah, he's yeah, going to end yeah. up being a great player or not, but yeah. those that those are the guys who went between your two number two picks. And yeah. if you like Charbonnet at that point might have been your best bet. The question is, mm-hmm. could you could you have gone inside with your first second round pick, or is is uh, is Derek Hall going to be enough to make that worthwhile? Well, I think there's there's a couple of things here. Like I think okay, so we'll we'll see. I I happen to know I've seen Derek Hall up close and personal. I've seen Cam Young. I did the the egg bowl this past year, so I know how good 
he can be and how good he was in school. We'll see what happens with a guy like Mike Morris. Do they keep him at defensive end? Does he become a hybrid inside-outside player that also gives you a 6'5", 300-pounder who can move inside? And how do these guys come along? Now, I'm, I'm, I know that these aren't – and look, Keanu Benton's an interesting name that you bring up, right? Because he, he's one of those guys where if you watch his Wisconsin tape just this past year, there's multiple games where you're going, I wouldn't draft this dude. I would not draft him. I'd put a highway cone out there before I draft him. And then I go down to the senior bowl and I'm watching him, and I have guys who I trust implicitly as far as defensive line evaluation telling me, hey, Lewis, you know who he reminds me of at this point in his career? He reminds me of Chris Jones, Kansas City Chris Jones. Mm. But he has that kind of potential, that kind of upside. And I've watched Mike Tomlin sitting there staring at him, just watching him, and I go, well, that's interesting. Well, it's not no coincidence that they drafted him. So I get it, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't discount how Cam Young could come along. Derek Hall is a – look, he is a hard-playing SOB, man. This guy gets after it. He gets after it, and he is going to be fun to watch. And Mike Morris, that's another one of those guys. It's just like you see the power, you see the natural strength, and he has got a heck of a – like he's just got so much going for him. I hope he's – I hope he becomes that dude who can be an inside-outside player that gives them the kind of beat that can slow down, that can slow down some of the bleeding that they've had as far as run defense is yeah. concerned. So, so Lewis, you know, development. There's development potential there. I, I love listening to you talk about the Seahawks, and, and you were right on last year with their draft class, and I think you're probably going to be right on this year. I feel like they've nailed it again. But let's talk through how the heck they're going to stop the run. I mean, un- unfortunately. Mike Morris might be great, and and yeah. and Cam Young might be great, but they're rookies, and yeah. that greatness is probably a little ways off. That's generally sure. the case in the NFL. Is this yeah. team serious about contending in 2023? And if so, how are they yeah. going to stop the run well enough to do that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, obviously, a lot of the young guys, okay, do I think they're serious about contending? Yes. How are they going to do that? Okay, so if you're if you're if you're if you can't ever get the third down and unleash what I consider to be some real good potential as far as being able to rush the passer, how are you gonna ever turn that loose if you can't ever get into second and long, third and long situations because you're always playing second and four, second and three? Um, I guess we're gonna find out. <laughs> I um, mean, are, are Draymond Jones and Jaron Reed that big of an upgrade from what you had a year ago? Because I mean, we're talking all these yeah. draft picks. Let's remember yeah. they went out and got on paper the second best defensive lineman in this free agent class, and Draymond Jones. They bring yeah. back Jaron Reed, an absolute alpha that they know inside and out. I mean, let's remember those two guys added with this draft class because they're difference makers, are they not? Absolutely, Draymond Jones is a stud. He's a stud. I, I was focusing on the draft class, but yeah, Draymond Jones is a stud. Uh, Jaron Reed is someone. Yep, yeah, I mean you know they know him very well. Of the two, like I, I like I'm, if you say the well, just pick between one of those two who you think is going to have a real tangible impact. I'm taking Draymond Jones all day. Love the way the man plays. So yeah, I'm, and I'm not. I mean those guys are not throwaways by any means, and you're you're dead on, Brock. So yeah, they they will more than be able to hold their own. Look, I, I think I think in, in the NFL now, look, teams are interested in producing explosives on offense through the air, 
throw to um, throw to get the lead, run the ball to protect it. Now, I don't know if that's necessarily Pete's philosophy, but I know that, you know, when teams are building football teams, they need explosive playmakers. Obviously, they need to protect their quarterback. You see they've got the running backs here. I mean, look, so I, I think they're very well-rounded and very well set up on offense. Defensively, teams emphasize reducing explosives, plus 20, plus 15-yard plays. Yeah, they they will figure out, look, schematically somehow, some way, as long as we have competent players up front, we'll be able to get to second and six, second and seven at some point because then we can turn loose the guys who we know we have to make sure we have enough of, which are pass rushers and play, people who can cover in the back end. Yeah, yeah, so like- I'm, I'm, along those lines, look, I hope Draymond Jones and Jaron Reed and, and Cam Young and these guys are good enough to where they can get to those second and long, third and long situations because I think once you get there, I think this team's going to be sitting right where they want to sit. Uh, last question for me, Lewis. I know I'm old. I know it. I'm 47, uh, 24 years of marriage today. I know I'm getting old. Uh, last week, uh, I had made a, a comment about I'd really like to see Jamal Adams at these OTAs. He's, he's down yeah. in Florida. He's rehabbing a very significant injury. All of that is very real. Happened week one of the season. He spent nine months mm-hmm. so far you know, rehabbing. He's got his people in Miami and Florida that he enjoys doing all of that with. And mm-hmm. Quandre Diggs kind of clapped back at me, you know, and just said, you know, poo-poo take um, or bad take that, you know, because I really was adamant that I think he needs to be around his team for a week. Come up to OTAs. Yeah. Spend some time up there. Do your rehab for a week with the – bring your own people for crying out loud. I don't care. Yeah. You got the resources to do it. Am I out of place? Is the, is the new player today just one like, hey, man, I'm going to rehab on my own, and you will see me at the start of training camp? Yeah, look, I, I'm – I mean, full disclosure, I, I love Jamal Adams. Love him. Love him as a person. Developed a relationship with him. And, you know, so just let me put that out there first and foremost. What I would like to see Jamal, you know, in, in, in any situation, what I'd like to see guys who are, quote, unquote, just to use one of your phrase, alphas like that, guys who are leaders, guys who are you know, paid a lot of money, people look to to set the tone, they like to see them around. What I like to see them around, of course. And I've talked about that extensively on TV, man. The best players need to be around. Because the players, I mean, I always got – inspired when our best players were around, whether it be in Cleveland, Atlanta, or Oakland. When they were around, I felt like I, I was being held to a higher standard. Even if they were hurt, even if they were rehabbing, even if they weren't practicing for whatever reason, when they were around, it just felt more professional. It felt more like, okay, everybody's in this thing. So, yeah, I get your point, and I agree with you. Now, the landscape has changed, man. The landscape has changed as far as, far as how players look at the offseason and whether or not they need to be physically in the building or not. Every single year it's been something about – I mean, players, more and more the arc seems to be trending downward as far as how much time do I want to put in in the offseason as far as having my, you know, me being physically present at the uh, facility relative to how much more money they're making. It's, all go, it's going in the opposite direction. And I'm old school like you. I hate that fact. I hate it because it's a team sport, and I love the team aspect of it. I didn't like training on my own away from everybody. I don't want to be in a bubble with my own trainers and doing my own thing. All no, I want to be around my boys. I want to be around my guys. That's what I love the most. I was one of those guys who was, a, who was an absolute facility junkie. I was there all the time. Sometimes just be sitting there just doing nothing. 
just hanging out, talking to the guys. And then we'd go to Fridays and get lunch with the guys and just hang out because that's what I love. It, it seems to be a little different in offseason now, and, and I don't like it. I'll admit I don't like it at all. But, you know, there's a lot of things I don't like about the way <laughs> this generation does things. I got four kids. There's a lot of things I don't like about the way they do things either. I'm still, I just had a conversation with my wife this morning about it for about two hours. <laughs> Trying to figure that out. What are you mad at your kids for? <laughs> oh, it, come on. We, we don't want to. You said, no. you said we were the last question. We don't have all day. Yes. <laughs> we we got to let you get back to your <laughs> wife and kids. We don't have all day to talk <laughs> yes. through what's going on with your kids. My uh, gosh. Lewis, thank you, man. I mean, You're the best. You know, they're, they're great kids, man. You know how that goes, though. It's, just, know. it's a different. You're just, you're just on a different playing field now when it comes to, you know, what resonates with. You know, eighteen to twenty-eight year old. This is different. Do you hold and your kids to the same standard you hold people on Twitter? Like, if you get something right and your kids are wrong, do you go back at them later and and, and show them the receipts? <laughs> um, you know what? Sometimes you almost have to. You don't you know anything. Don't be like. I mean, if you don't stand up for yourself and be like, "Hey, see, look, I actually gave you some advice here that was actually right." Right. You know, they'll, they'll never believe you're right about anything. No, of course not. They think that you don't know anything. So, hey, yeah, good so. stuff, man. Hey, we appreciate it. We think you know a lot, and yeah. we enjoy having you on here in Seattle. And uh, every time we do, I think we learn a little something. So thank you, and uh, appreciate all the course, positive man. words about where the Seahawks are going. We'll talk again. Thanks, Lou. Absolutely. Yes. There you go. There's Lewis Riddick, who, uh, who's awesome, man. I Every time he comes on, he's so fired up. He's got so much energy. Well, they, they used to tell us at ESPN – Right, this was years ago, and we would have our seminars every year at ESPN. And ESPN and Fox different in this way, by the way. The Fox folks really want you to be you, and and kind of organically within your crews, they they have a, a few. ESPN doesn't want you to be you at all. A few staples, right? They want they have a few of those, but but by and large, you you kind of do you know figure it out. ESPN a lot larger scale. Those seminars for all of those years, like every year, there was a hey. We're going to have you know these concentric circles, and when the game is good, you, you stick to the game. But when right. it gets worse, you know, all, all you know different you know theories. And, and, I, and I think when you're the scale they are, and the size they are, and the number of different people and producers and coordinating producers, and everybody has a little bit of a say. But the one that really stood out in my 12 years there was you got to cut through. You got to cut through, and Lewis cuts through. Like every time he's on, mm-hmm. right? Whether the draft or a radio show, or like his opinion is cutting through. His energy just cuts through. Well, and how sure how sure he is that he's right. Well, right? just I mean, how confident, confident he is. Yeah. He's very confident, and, he, and he's not going to be right all the time. But he's confident, and he trusts his people. He trusts his eyes. He trusts his life experience, and all of that. So, Brock, yeah. all that is great. What the heck are they going to do to stop the run? I mean, like, I like, I, you're not going to fight with him about it, but. <laughs> It's great to say that teams, for the most part out there, are trying to get explosive plays through the passing game, and the Seahawks are pretty well set up to stop that. Mm-hmm. But the Niners aren't. The Niners are, are set up to run the ball and do everything that is going to be a challenge for you. The Eagles aren't. The Eagles can do everything. I mean, they have the, as balanced an offense as you're going to find right now. So, Mike, how are the Mariners going to score more runs? 
How you know this off season? How are they going to score more runs than they did a year ago? How are they going to make sure when they face the Astros they don't go eighteen scoreless? Mm-hmm. How are they going to score more runs? Well, we are going to bring in Teoscar. We are going to bring in AJ Pollock, who, by the way, made some money. Those two moves were yeah. hot, bottom of the barrel budget. Teo made more is making more money in arbitration year than any Mariner Mariner history, any player in history, I believe. In, that, in, in, any player, right? I think it is any player. I wanted to say that I wasn't totally Lewis really confident every, on that, but I think you're right. Player. Yeah. Any player in the history of the final year of arbitration, he's making that kind of dough. AJ Pollock is making what seven, eight million bucks? Not a, not a nothing. And those guys, along with the others, you know, the other just kind of bottom of the barrel, Listellas and other moves. Brock, convincing I'm, me that the Seahawks are going to stop the run better by talking about the Mariners hitting better is not working. Okay, I'm, what I'm going to get to is the Mariners brought in those additions and thought that they would make an impact. They haven't. The Seahawks brought in Dre Jones. Okay, paid him second most money of any defensive lineman. We forget that. Mm-hmm. We think we just kind of throw that one away. Oh yeah, I know they spent big. That was awesome. Okay, what's next? No, that that guy's got to come in and be an absolute Chris Jones monster. He's got to be a difference maker. He's got to play at that elite level. Jaron Reed, you brought in because he is much better than Quentin Jefferson and L.J. Collier and the other stuff that was not good uh, last year. So those two, and then right behind him. Oh, by the way, to stop the run. You need Devin Bush and Bobby Wagner to be what they are and what they have been in their career. Even at this stage at 250-some pounds, you know what Bobby can do? Bobby's got the biggest back and the biggest calves that Justin has ever seen in his life. It's true. And he's going to come down and he's going to hit you in a way that Cody that's, Barton that's great. could as, not that's do. great as long as there's not a ton of wash in front of him from a defensive lineman who's been blown back five yards. Uh, those are Devin Bush, Bobby Wagner, Dre Jones, and Jaron Reed are four guys that we've not talked enough about when it comes to stopping the run. Those four men's job will be not just to rush the passer or to cover, it will be to stop the run. As A.J. Pollock, Teoscar Hernandez, and Colton Wong were supposed to be to help you score some freaking that, that's runs. That's great, as long as that group doesn't turn out to be what we've seen so far from the group at T-Mobile Park. Speaking of that group, Shannon Dreyer will join us next. It's Brock and Salk on Seattle Sports.